Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Padgett here and this week I'm super excited to be chatting with Saggy Habib about saying no to clients. But before we jump into the interview, I want to give a massive shout out to FreshBooks who has sponsored this season of the podcast. For those not familiar with FreshBooks, it's an online accounting software built for creative professionals that allows you to easily send branded invoices, keep track of your profits and expenses, and so much more. I recommend you try it out for yourself, and you can do that with a free 30-day trial just by visiting freshbooks.com forward slash Logo Geek, and make sure that you enter Logo Geek in the How Did You Hear About Us section. So anyway, as mentioned this week, I'm really, really excited to be chatting with Sagi Haviv, a partner and designer at Ch- Chamayov and Geismar and Haviv, who has designed logos for companies including the Library of Congress, Harvard University Press, Beko, and the US Open, to name just a few. Now, I've known about Saggy for many years, mainly due to his obvious associations with Tom Geismar, who is someone that I was able to interview last season. So if you haven't heard that, go back to the last season and check that out. It's a fantastic interview with someone who I see as a real design legend. Anyway, a few months back, I came across a TEDx talk from Saggy called Visual Identities More Than Just a Logo, which is a a video that I highly recommend you watch. It's, It's probably one of the best pieces of logo design content I come across this year. And it's also um, a, a video that's worth kind of going in combination with this interview now because it kind of expands on the conversation. Anyway, in this presentation, Asagi discussed client relationships and how sometimes you need to say no to clients to give the best possible service. But I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into this topic to learn more from him, to understand how you can say no to a client as he did without damaging the client relationship in any way. In this episode, we also speak about how Saggy got his intern placement with Tom and Ivan, which eventually led him to being a partner with them. And we also talk about the new book from the agency too. This is a really value-packed discussion, so I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. So let's get straight into this. Here is the interview with Saggy Haviv. I want to kick off the discussion by asking you a a follow-up question I have after watching your fantastic TED talk. Now, in that, you used a great example where where your client requested changes to um, a logo you did, and you was able to turn back to them and say no. Now, I'm aware that there's likely much more to this, so I want to ask you, how are you able to say no to a client as you did in this case without risking damaging the client relationship in any way? Yeah, that's that's tricky. No question about it. I mean, I would say uh, for starters, it is easier to come at your client and say no when you kind of have, uh, you know, what the certainly Ivan and Tom have built over the years before I even got here. Um, you know, it's much harder if you're starting on your own or if you have, you know, um, just uh, you in front of the client. Uh, it, it is difficult. So, um, 
you know, everybody should give themselves a break a little bit. But I think that it's worth uh, trying uh, without losing your client. And for that, you know, I would say the first thing is, you know, make it clear to them that the result is just as important to you as it is to them and that you are committed to the success of this of this project and then there are all kinds of tricks to get them to understand what you're trying to to say so oftentimes we go and get examples from other brands other brands that have been successful in doing something that we are trying to get them to do. So if we're trying to get them to choose the simplest possible solution, we might show, you know, a diagram of other brands. Sometimes we like to pick our own. Sometimes we like to pick others that, you know, went for a simple solution and then showing the evolution over the years and how it kept changing until it stopped changing because it was so simple and, you know, showing that the longest, you know, period of time was with the simplest iteration and that, you know, at some point, you know, Mercedes at nine, in 1933 stopped changing their logo because they arrived at the simplest possible solution. And then we can make, you know, a business argument that, you know, they stopped spending money on their logo. And they stop spending money on changing their logo, whether it's, you know, uh, the millions of iterations that they have on the cars or whether it's signage or whatever it is, uh, that's less expense. And at, at the time that it gets to the final iteration, it can build equity into the future and really kind of try to understand what makes your client tick and try to speak to their listening and, you know, become kind of the voice of reason, um, not many clients will care about, you know, if you're excited about something because of, you know, the relationship of positive space to negative space or because of some kind of a nice contrast between geometric shapes and serif type, your client is probably not going to care. You have to figure out what they care about and then try to approach it that way. Mm -hmm. So those slides that you mentioned, um, at what point would you show that? Would you always show that when you're presenting your work or would you only ever like pull up that slide and, and talk through that in the event that the client does come back to you and, and you know, ask, can we make it like this or can we change that and so on or can we make it more complicated? Right. So it's both. Uh, you don't want to barge into an open door. You don't want to be too heavy-handed with in a didactic with your client because that's also can come off as kind of patronizing or just annoying. So we open every presentation with a couple of warnings um, because you know looking at a logo for the first time is very difficult. And um, so we, our first slide in every presentation says, you know, it's never love at first sight. Um, and we ask, uh, and usually that gets kind of a, a laugh, you know, from the client and a giggle. And then some of them, 50% of them would say, you know, is this an excuse? You know, um, you know, am I not going to like what I'm about to see? Uh, because oftentimes people get to this point 
kind of nervous. You know, they gave us eight, 10 weeks. They didn't get to see anything during that time. And suddenly, you know, sometimes there's time pressure. Sometimes there's pressure from your boss. You know, you sit there and you're about to see what we worked out. So suddenly you get this uh, kind of warning. It's never love at first sight. And that can be unnerving. Um, so we explained that this is something that, you know, it, it, a little bit of an absurd to sit there and look at logos for the first time. Logo, logos work through familiarity. And you're about to see something that you call a logo or maybe can become a logo, but at the moment, it's not familiar at all. So how do you judge from the options that we show you which one is the best? Well, you need to put aside personal preferences, you know, or subjective, you know, tenets. Oh, I like circles. I don't like squares. Or I don't like sharp corners. Or I prefer yellow. I don't like blue. All this is meaningless. And first impressions can be misleading. So we give them these, these warnings. And we say, let's try to put aside personal preferences. Let's try to put aside subjective feelings. And that means we try to see what works, what works best. And we list for them three criteria. What are we looking for from a good logo? We're looking for something appropriate. And appropriate really means, doesn't mean expressive because we can't, we can't say very much with a good logo. In fact, the less they say, the better. But appropriate really means personality. You know, does it feel right? Does it have the right attitude, the right um, character? And that means, you know, if it's in sport, maybe it's bold and dynamic. Or if it's fashion, maybe it's elegant. You know, it's a, it's a personality thing. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is if it's you know, memorable, uh, distinctive, unusual enough to persist in our mind. So we see it once or twice. We can describe it to somebody or... Doodle it on a piece of paper. That's a good test. And then the last criteria is simplicity. It needs to be simple, uh, uncomplicated in form. So they can work in on every platform, be flexible, be, you know, can work tiny, can work big, can work in three dimension, can work in pixels. Uh, because that flexibility will ensure that it it's seen, you know, uh consistently and the same everywhere so it can build equity over time so once we gave those warnings and we always like to also give one example of a very very simple logo that has worked over time and that's the national geographic uh, yellow frame that our company did years ago and we say you know if you've seen it for the first time the way you're sitting here in this room about to see logos for the first time, and he didn't know anything about National Geographic, you would say, what the hell is this? It's just a yellow rectangle. It's nothing. But in fact, in combination with the name and through consistent use, it has become the perfect vessel for all the associations and the feelings that people have with National Geographic. And then we dive into, you know, seeing uh, new logos and all the warnings are out the window and everybody responds to like, eh, I don't like this. It's, you know, it's too sharp. <laughs> so 
you know, it, the warnings can only do so much, but it it helps. It sounds then, like you're laying yeah. foundations to Absolutely. avoid or to be able to justify saying no because X, Y, and Z. Yes, but we might have to say no at some point later on. And I think that <clears throat> the other very important part of this process is that you should always insist on meeting the decision makers before you present designs. In other words, in the first part of the project, when we do the interviews and we talk to people, oftentimes, not oftentimes, but I would say, you know, 20% of the time, we would walk into a big corporation and the marketing people who kind of run the project would say, yeah, you know, you're not going to have access to the CEO. He's not interested in this. He told us, you know, that we can run this project or he's too busy. You know, he's traveling. And that's the first no that we will have to say is, no, we will not do this if we don't have access to the CEO. And the reason is not because we're dying to meet him, but because if we meet him for the first time, when we go up in front of him to present designs, it's kind of like, you know, a carpet salesman coming to sell you something. There's no opportunity to establish rapport with him he or, or level of trust. You know, who are you people that are doing this? Instead, suddenly it's I'm, I'm a stranger and I'm coming to show him something for the first time that is just kind of a very simple thing, a meaningless thing on on a screen. And it all becomes much more difficult. And then if you're hoping to push back in any way, forget it. So the idea of the first conversation is not just to get information from him about the vision for the company, about what makes it special and so on, about what he wants the logo to kind of project, what kind of feeling. But it's really even more important for us is about establishing a relationship, a relationship with him. Then he feels comfortable with us. And then, and then if we need to, we can say no to something that he asks later on. I love that what you've done is uh, really established a lot of credibility and, and trust from the outset through building a, a relationship so that when the time does come, you can say um, a very firm no. So aside from your reputation, which I know will already give you a lot of credibility, it's, it's how you are presenting and how you're laying the foundations uh, for the um, design slash client relationship that's that's really making a big difference here. Yes, and sometimes the no is... I'll give you an example. It just happened yesterday. I said, no, we're working with, you know, a very, very big um, t television entertainment brand that's in 180 countries. And, you know, they are making a big change and, you know, we're designing a new logo for them. And our presentation is a week from now. And suddenly the president uh, of the network reached out to us and asked to see things, you know, yesterday. In other words, we had a call scheduled yesterday and 
we got a call the day before saying we would like to see where you are. And I had to say no, because we will never ever expose any sketches or any work in progress. For one thing, you know, it's still going through trademark search, but regardless, you know, our uh, we're very disciplined uh, about this. Our approach is to only show designs that we can stand behind that have have you know gone through a rigorous testing on our end with you know in applications in the context so that we feel that by the time we get together the client can literally pick any of the options and they would work beautifully so we got on a you know she's based in in the UK and we got on uh, on a call on a on a Google Hangout, and you know, I had to say no, and I explained all these things, and because we've had a meeting initially when we kicked off the project, and you know, we kind of earned her respect uh, and deference. She not happily, but she understood, and she said, "Okay, I will wait." even though, you know, it's in a very, very tight timeline and there's a lot of pressure. So, you know, sometimes you might even have to say no before you've shown anything. Uh, but the process is very, very uh, important for the success of the project because, again, these logos um, in the in the early stages and first time you expose them, they're so fragile. They're like you know little babies, you know, and they can be they can die on the vine very quickly because again they haven't had the chance to build recognition and familiarity. They are just designs on a piece of paper. They are not. They don't even. They haven't even earned the right to be called logos. So with that, you know, yeah, you have to protect them and you have to present them in the right setting, in the right circumstance. And, you know, another thing that sometimes we have to say no to is presentation uh, remotely. We will never present anything over a web conference. And believe me, we get clients, you know, from Silicon Valley or whatever that, you know, they say, well, you know, why not? Just show it to me. You know, the logo has to speak for itself. The logo has to work over the internet. Why can't I see it for the first time over the internet? And our answer is that by the time it has to work over the internet, it has been adopted. It represents your brand. At the moment, it does not represent your brand. And in order to discuss them properly, there's nothing that can replace the energy in the room, the humans that come together and sit in a room together with our expertise and guidance and their you know, expertise about their field and their company and their industry. Those minds coming together uh, in person and making the right decision is the only way we would do it.
Mm-hmm. So you would only ever work with clients that you can potentially um, travel to. You would never work with someone in in like an, a different country and and do it online. Am I understanding? No, that? we work with people in different countries all the time, but we okay. just travel. But you travel to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So in fact, a couple of years ago, <clears throat> uh, we worked on uh, Yoshinoya, which is a very a big restaurant chain in Japan. They have over 1,500 restaurants there and they have, you know, a hundred and something restaurants on the West Coast here. And we were engaged with, you know, we were engaged by the U.S. team, but then we had to present it to uh, the chairman in in Japan. And so I went to Tokyo to present it to him because, again, we, we said we would only take on the project if we can present to him in person. It turned out that they had five different times engaged five different agencies and they all failed because the chairman in Tokyo rejected it, uh, rejected the design. So we said we would only take it on if we can present to him in person. And once we presented to him in person, you know, he got up and left the room. He said, 10 minute break, got up, left the room with his entire team, came back 10 minutes later and said through the translator, you know, I re, you know, I wanted to reject your proposal, but after have seen, having seen it, I cannot reject your proposal. So I would, I will approve it, not just for the U.S., but I would like to implement it all over Japan. So I got on a plane back to New York, and then I got a call from the U.S. team saying he's requested that you will come back and present it to his board next week. So I had to go back to Tokyo just to present to his board. And the proof is in the pudding, the presentation, the presentation that we put together and presented in person makes all the difference to get people over that hump of adopting something new. And this is a brand that, you know, has been around for 100 years. I just want to take a short break, sorry guys, to tell you a little bit more about FreshBooks who has sponsored this season of the podcast and allow me to make it possible. So FreshBooks is a cloud accounting software for creative professionals that allows us to be more productive and organized. I remember when I started working for myself, I was keeping track of my money in an Excel spreadsheet and creating my invoices in InDesign. As I became more busy, it quickly became messy and I just felt really unorganized. When I started using FreshBooks, it saved me so much time and my processes felt so much more organized and more professional as a result. My invoices still look great and my profits and expenses were nicely organized and easy to see in a beautiful dashboard. If this sounds like a useful tool for you, I suggest you take advantage of the free unrestricted 30-day trial that's available to all listeners of this podcast. To claim that, all you need to do is visit freshbooks.com forward slash logageek and be sure to enter logageek in the how did you hear about us section. So let's get back to that absolutely incredible interview with Saggy Heviv. It was around 10 years ago now, but I, I read a blog where you designed a logo for Giorgio Armani um, on a logo for AX, which I think was a magazine. Um, and I understand that at that time, the client simply rejected the uh, logo outright, but you then found out that it was presented only on a white piece of paper. 
Um, I also understand that you was able to go back and present the same work a second time, but this time it was agreed immediately. Now, could you talk through this story and um, explain through what you did differently the second time to get it approved so quickly? Sure. And and the premise of your question is already needs to be corrected a little bit because you said you worked sure. with Giorgio Armani. Well, we weren't really allowed to work with him. And okay. that was the biggest problem. So <clears throat> the guys from Armani Exchange, um, Tom Gerald and Matthew Scrivens, who were, you know, two kind of brilliant guys that ran the entire brand from here in New York, um, and they, you know, recognized that the logo had to change. They had some challenges with it, um, you know, not just design-wise with the typography and the A and the X were kind of terrible looking, but it kind of fell apart. The mark was very light, fell apart in the context of their ads. So once they came to us, you know, we we thought they were really the client, but it turned out after, you know, kind of solving the problem that, Really, the person that has 55% um, of the stock and makes the final decision is really Giorgio Armani, or as they call him, Mr. Armani. And you can imagine he has, you know, a visual sense and he wants to have a say. So the first thing we said was, well, we should present it to him. And they said, no, um, you know, we want to play it down so that <clears throat> it doesn't become kind of a big thing and maybe that will help us kind of get it through. So they said, we will take it to him in Milan. And when they met with him, uh, you know, we were kind of nervous here in New York waiting to hear. And I got actually a text from one of them saying that he rejected it. When they came back to New York, we asked them to come in and see what, what happened. And they actually brought that piece of paper with a big X on it that he put, you know, at the printout of the logo with a big X on it. And, we said, well, why didn't you show him all the executions? Uh, because as I said, we are very disciplined about testing the logo in executions in, in the context of communication. So we showed it on a, on a hang tag, on a, you know, on a label inside the t-shirt, on ads, uh, on the website and so on to prove that it works better than uh, the mark that they were, had been using. And they said, well, you know, he has 30 meetings a day and there's simply no time to show him all these things. So we said, well, you, you guys have to go back and show him all these executions. And they said, no, nobody ever goes back. You know, once he said no, <laughs> that's it. And we really pushed them and they did it. And once they showed them the executions, they came back with a piece of paper with his signature on it next to the <laughs> logo. And they were so happy. And you know, we, we learn a lot. We learn from all these experiences. But sometimes there's simply no access, right, to the decision mm -hmm. maker. And then you have to do your best remote. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to expand on something that you briefly mentioned earlier in the conversation. Um, I understand that as a business, you get your logo designs pre-checked with a trademark lawyer before presenting anything to the client. Now, this isn't something I currently do, and I imagine that quite a few listeners will be in the same boat as me. So could you talk through um, your process uh, for working with a trademark lawyer and the reason why you do that at this stage? Yes. So that's very important. And 
I would say seven years ago, around seven years ago, we kind of changed the way we do it. We used to just design things, maybe look in design books and maybe on Google, see that there's nothing obvious that is kind of similar. And then we would present it and then the client would kind of, you know, choose a mark and then go into trademark search. Um, It just started making no sense to do it this way. You know, we ask clients to trust us and give us, you know, eight, 10, 12 weeks to work on these things. And then they can't wait for the presentation. We get together, we present things. And if you don't know that these things are at least, you know, available um, or at least survive some kind of a preliminary knockout search, that there's nothing obvious that it infringes on, then this whole exercise is meaningless. Getting together, you know, God forbid, falling in love with something and then realizing that you can't really own it because somebody else owns it in the same trademark uh, category. That would be a waste of time. And then what happens is, this is just to the designers here to explain, once they fell in love with one option, all the other options are dead. You you will not be able to revive them because he already has something that he likes more or she likes more. And then you're in trouble. You have to go back to the drawing board and squeeze every bit of creative juice that you might have left to top the options that you already presented. So what we now insist on doing is we get a budget from the, from the client to conduct preliminary trademark search, which we bill as an expense. And when we come up with something, you know, we send it to the attorney and, you know, we define the market and the trademark category or categories that we're, we're interested in. And they will do a quick search in the US or in the EU or right now, <clears throat> you know, for this entertainment brand I mentioned, it's, you know, pretty much... Uh, you know, quite a few markets. Same thing, you know, when we did the US Open last year, uh, we, you know, searched it in quite a few markets. And then, you know, when we get a clean bill of health, we put it into the presentation. Um, the client is still responsible for doing a final trademark clearance once they pick the mark. But at least it gives them, you know, some comfort that they're not wasting their time. I'm curious, was there some kind of experience that you had prior to making this change that that caused you to actually do this? I mean, for example, did you actually finish a project and then it get to the point where it needed trademarking, but it couldn't be? Is that why you, why you changed it or just because you felt it made sense to do that? So thank God it hasn't happened. And I also, you know, I must say that most of our designs um, usually clear, but, you know, we're looking for something very, very simple. And those, you know, those things are, you know, there's great designers all over the world that are thinking about these things. And it's, you know, just, just by, I mean, this is just a, uh, nothing we can do about the fact that as the time passes, more and more simple shapes are owned and claimed and the available shapes are, 
you know, less and less. And so, you know, I think uh, I sometimes joke with Tom that when he did the octagon for Chase Bank, you know, he could do something like that and not even worry about a trademark search. But now, you know, when we come up with something this simple, we really have to do our due diligence before uh, showing it to the client. There's also one other aspect, as as you you know touched on before. We have opinions. We come in. We like to argue for this option or that option. We like to push the client in a direction. And if we cannot be confident that that option is available, then it will be very hard for us to do our job in guiding the client to the best possible outcome. That really makes sense. And uh, I feel it's something I really need to look into for my own uh, design. So um, I really appreciate your response here. Now, I want to ask you um, briefly about your background, as I understand that you joined Tom and Ivan as an intern back in 2003, um, but you then became a partner only two years later. Now, I'm curious to learn, how did you originally get noticed to get that opportunity in the first place? (laughs) Yeah, that was tough. It was tough to get in. And I think, you know, for me, I kind of uh, don't take no for an answer, So, but I really had to push myself in. So I was just finishing Cooper Union, and Steph Geisbuehler, who was a partner of Tom and Ivan's at the time, uh, came to teach uh, once, you know, one class as a guest uh, lecturer. And I uh, took his class, and I kind of had uh, designs on him to, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make him hire me. Because by that time, I kind of was a big admirer of, of the firm and, and it kind of became a dream of mine. But then he walked into the first class and he said, before we start, I just want to let everybody know we're not hiring anybody. In fact, you know, we're firing people at the moment. So please don't come to me and ask for a job. And that was kind of devastating. So, um, you know, I put it kind of on hold and then... You know, it's funny, at the end of that year, in a commencement speech, uh, the artist Lori Anderson gave uh, kind of the commencement speech, and she ended her speech with a piece of advice. She said, don't wait to be asked, Um, which is something that kind of stuck in my mind. Um, You know, don't wait for somebody to open the door for you or even hold the door open for you. You have to kind of knock and knock and, and insist. <clears throat> and so I did that. I, um, I I was kind of became a nuisance to Steph. I wrote him email after email every couple of days. And literally short of begging, I did everything. And eventually he said, you know, okay, you can come in for three days a week, but, you know, we can't really pay you. So, and, you know, I did it. And I think that getting a foot in the door is an opportunity to then, prove to people who you are and, you know, that you can be of value somehow. And uh, when I started, they just were working on an exhibition uh, of the kind of a retrospective exhibition of the firm's work at the Cooper Union. And they were looking for a way to uh, present the logos, the trademarks. And I just... For fun, at home, I started kind of animating the marks. You know, I, I studied After Effects at Cooper, and I was just doing it because I thought it was fun. And 
then after I animated maybe 15 of them, I, I brought it to the office and I showed it to Tom and Steph and Ivan and they got turned on and they were like, oh yeah, why don't you continue to do it on the office time? So I continued to do that and ended up with about 80 something trademarks in that sequence. And they ended up using it for the exhibition. And so then they noticed me. And then suddenly, I don't even know how it happened. Somebody submitted it to the Tokyo Type Directors Club and it, it won there. So suddenly they sent me there to get the award. And I, I don't know, I brazenly met with the people at the Ginza Graphic Gallery uh, in Tokyo and told them that they should bring our exhibition there. And again, you know, the door was open because the name, uh, Chemayev and Geismar Inc. at the time was very well known in Japan. So, you know, suddenly there's a call and they said, yeah, let's, you know, bring your exhibition to Japan. And I got kudos for that. And uh, from here to there, um, you know, I got noticed. Yeah. And uh, so a lot of it is is luck. And, uh, you know, I'm very grateful. Uh, eventually, you know, when the, when the company split up, um, you know, I got an opportunity to really join with Ivan and Tom and, and become partner with them. Well, I think that's an incredible story. And, and I think, um, a lot of it isn't luck. It's more of the compound effect. You worked really hard and, and every opportunity you took, and that just started a, a domino effect. I mean, your story is an inspiration to me and I'm sure a lot of listeners will be, um, the, the same as me. Now I have one last question for you. Um, I understand that your company has a new book, um, called Identity Chimayev and Geismar and Javi. Can you tell us a little bit more about that book and what it means to you? Yeah, this, this book, first of all, uh, Hamish and Jesse are really have been incredible. Um, <clears throat> it kind of came together beautifully. They wanted to do a book. We uh, felt that, you know, enough time passed since uh, previous book, Identify, um, which was uh, more of a kind of a copy-heavy publication where we kind of told stories about uh, logos and how they came to be. And in in this case, with identity, um, we kind of felt like, you know, there's a, a, such a volume of work that maybe we can really treat them kind of like artwork and not even say uh, too much. I mean, obviously... Each, each one of these designs is a solution to a problem. We're, we're not artists and we don't do whatever we want. Um, but uh, we feel that we give enough attention to the visual properties and the, you know, the magic of the, of the form uh, that, you know, maybe we could get away with, you know, just presenting them in a very clean way on a, on a page. And, and that, that's exactly what Hamish and Jesse did. And, uh, and I have to say, when we got our advanced copy here, we were uh, so delighted with the way it came out. I mean, just even the production value, you know, they went on press, they made sure that uh, every drop of ink is like impeccable. And, and it really is. And, you know, it's kind of a bittersweet because Ivan was 
very much involved in in uh, in the book and you know reviewing their proposals and their designs and and you know working through the design of this very very thick book it's over 300 pages but i've never got to kind of hold this book in his hand and you know it's it's um ivan is the one that was always you know always thought about the next book every time you know we put out a, a new logo or even when we present uh, options to a client it's always the test w- would we be proud to put this design in our book in our next book and if we're and if the answer is no or maybe we would not present it to the client because Ivan always said you know they will pick that one and then we'll be stuck with something that's not great and we'll have our name on it so uh, for him this book would have been uh, an event and uh, and that's that's the sad part but it really is um, very very beautiful and you know it's uh, It has a, an essay in the front uh, by Alexandra Lang, who, um, you know, she's a writer. She writes uh, for The New Yorker and, and other publications. And I have to say, you know, we, we didn't give her much direction. We met with her. We presented her a few projects as if we are presenting it to a client and walked her through our process. And what she came back with, uh, the essay is actually named uh, It's Never Love at First Sight. Um, and she goes through, you know, the, the whole approach of how to present and touches on what you asked about, about saying no. But also, it, she really captured this idea of the one, that although we show options and although we explore hundreds of options, You know possible designs and sketch form somehow there is always a feeling of inevitable inevitability uh, with the final selection that this is the one it was meant to be uh, all along and when that happens we feel that uh, we're truly successful is that you know it's kind of like you married the client with their destined you know logo that they, they were meant to have Mm-hmm. I think the book looks absolutely uh, stunning what I've seen of it and um, one thing that I've always liked to do is have um, benchmark work so work that I can look to and think I want to do work just as good as that and and for me um, that's definitely going to be one of those books so I think it's a good um, uh, tribute to um, Ivan and all of the work that um, you guys have done uh, over the years so it looks like an amazing book and I, I think all listeners should definitely um, check it out and, and get a copy of that. Thank you, Ian. And, and uh, there was one, one last thing um, about the cover of the book and, you know, a theme that was really very much kind of on our mind uh, with this whole um, kind of publication is the cover is a bunch of silhouettes, right? And on every page, there's a tiny silhouette on the bottom left-hand corner of the mark in black. And at the end of the book, the index, uh, the listings features all these tiny silhouettes. Um, and if you uh, kind of go through the pages quickly, you can see all these silhouettes, one up to the other in the corner. There, there's a reason for that. We design in silhouette. 
right? We don't uh, even touch color uh, until we found a distinctive, ownable silhouette that also feels appropriate. And, you know, it, it, it is, has a lot to do with process, even though we're not sitting there describing the process, but maybe the most important thing is there in the form of it and also on the cover. Now, the book sounds quite incredible. So um, I think anyone that's listening to this will definitely want to check that out for themselves. Now, Saggy, it's been a real honor to be able to speak with you today. As you know, I'm I'm a big fan. So uh, thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you again for being an absolutely fantastic guest. Sure thing, Anne. Such an amazing interview. Thank you, Saggy, so much for being an amazing guest and for being so transparent about how you present your work. I got so much value out of this and I really hope that um, you, the listener, has got as much out of it as I did too. Now, if you want to learn more about Saggy or you want to watch the video that I mentioned or you want to read a transcription of um, everything that was said, just go and check out the show notes for this episode and you can find that over at logogeek.uk forward slash 3.2. Now, if you want to talk about this episode with me and over 5,000 other logo designers from around the world, just join the Logo Geek community over at Facebook. It's free to join and you can find it at logogeek.uk forward slash community. So thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, I'll see you next week for another insightful interview.